0: Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. My guest today is Dr. Ezra Rashid, a first generation British Pakistani. His parents ingrained in him the value of hard work and education. I first met Azrar a decade ago when he was my student at London Business School, one of the most open to learning, engaged, curious, enthusiastic, and hardworking students I have ever taught. His day job is in highly specialized pediatric intensive care, first as a consultant doctor for the NHS, and more recently as the head of the pediatric intensive care department at NMC Royal Hospital in Abu Dhabi. But the catastrophic earthquake that devastated North Pakistan in 2005 galvanized a deep dedication to charitable service that has defined much of his life's work. With several colleagues, Azrar committed to serving the health and well-being of the poor and destitute of Azad, Jammu, and Kashmir. By 2012, their collective, incorporated as a charity known as Midland Doctors, had opened a fully functioning hospital there. They have provided cost-free medical care for 350,000 patients, including in the aftermath of the 2010 floods in the region and now during the COVID pandemic. As part of this venture, Azrar has also developed a malnutrition program focusing on treating children with acute, severe malnutrition. Never afraid to expand his horizons and challenge himself. He is currently working on his PhD on the role that artificial intelligence can play in helping to understand and treat severe sepsis in critical care. I know that those who are listening will learn so much from your example and your commitment to the social good, Azrar. Thank you for being here today. I'd like to begin by asking a question I ask all my guests, which is, what does responsible leadership mean to you?
1: My work is so varied and often involved with emergency situations where children's lives are at the edge, or I've been involved with forensic situations where children have been abused, either physically or sexually, or I might be coming to a situation where I'm setting up a new ICU, I've got challenges with family, et cetera, et cetera. I aim to provide the best advocacy using the best practice and the best service to my patients and the best allocation of resources for the better good.
0: And how do you think it might be different in healthcare than in other other types of contexts? Do you think the challenges are different or that the responsibilities are different?
1: There's still the, the, this whole relationship with a, with a potential customer, the resources, your management, etc. So I think the, the business or management framework potentially is the same. The nuances, of course, are there. You're dealing with a life-and-death situation scenario and very challenging and emotionally-driven situations as well. The situations also change. Dealing with a patient that is stable and is getting better, improving or has a mild disease, is very different from a patient that suddenly crashes in front of you and you have to suddenly implement measures to potentially going to either save a life or you're not going to be successful.
0: You said earlier that one of the things that's making a difference for you now is the stability and strength of your team. Can you explain, you know, how you built a team that works well and how that's compared to teams that have worked less well and why?
1: In the countries I've worked before, US, UK, Australia, there is a hierarchical process in which you have a team that's built around the academic or the training processes which means that not necessarily when you have team members that are that experienced, they're on their way to develop and uh, to gain that expertise and experience over time. So then this shifts the onus to the the treating clinician, the person who is leading on that case, which is different to the situation I'm currently dealing with. We've attracted doctors that not necessarily the same pieces of paper that one would expect in the UK, US, et cetera, but they have a vast level of experience and that experience does count for something. They may have developed their, their training, their experience over in a very different system, but the essence and how they deliver care is the same. And they've accumulated this over a period of time. So they've, they've come and been slotted into the positions under me, which is great for me because uh, they are that much more experienced than the kind of conditions that I would have had the the value of in my previous countries.
0: So tell me a little bit about your career progression. You know, you've worked in several countries, you were trained in in many places, in in many types of degrees even. You started your medical practice in the UK and are now in the UAE. What have you considered the biggest turning points in your career?
1: The uh, first turning point in my career was actually a lot earlier on i was in college and i just received a piece of paper to say that no medical university had accepted me onto any program so that was the the first turning point my family immigrated from pakistan to the uk in the 60s and there was no role model in my family both parents were working class to go through college and to get outstanding grades and to be accepted onto a program was, uh, you know, my first turning point. Then I think uh, one in the health system at least gets slotted into a a program of of training and in the five years become a doctor and then you decide on the specialization. So once those difficult decisions are made, you know, you slot into a program. Uh, I believe I'm now in my... Second point of inflection, I have recently commenced a PhD program. That's been really quite informative for me. I, I believe it's also been mind-changing.
0: Where do you think you get your work ethic from, Azrar? I was just thinking about you as a student, and I don't know that I've had very many that have worked as hard as you do.
1: The work ethic comes from my, my, my parents. And uh, as immigrants, they just said, you know, you've just got to work hard. They did all their lives, and that's the work I think I think that's that's primarily where it comes from. And secondly, the focus is to to do better for my patients. And you know when you see patterns disease and disease you, and you see things happening in front of you, I, I believe it's very, very important to to make a noise and uh, first of all, to understand what it is that you're you're seeing to appreciate what you're seeing and then to try to understand it and try to make some sense that may help other doctors as well. And, uh, I mean, the case to point now is, uh, is the COVID phenomena that we're seeing in children. That's the first time many of us have seen this, this level of, of condition that's, that's affecting in, in, uh, children in, in such a way. But the social media, other channels are coming to help support doctors like myself who would have been working in a very isolated environment. But, but we heard quite early on from cases in New York and London, and we were already we were anticipating some of those issues.
0: That's a really interesting way that you're using technology and sort of new digitally mediated ways of communication to inform your medical
1: practice. Yeah, this is where we're talking about pre-planning. I also utilize this in the, the charity work that I do. And we were trying to persuade governments in North Pakistan that they were going to be facing a major epidemic. At the time, when waters were relatively quiet, they thought, you know, things were, were going to be fine. And it was just a nice isolated phenomenon in Europe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But unfortunately, that's not been the case.
0: I have been really surprised this year by the extent to which we can deceive ourselves that what's coming down the pipeline somehow won't hit us. I think a lot of leaders, especially in science, have struggled with communicating what an an exponential curve looks like, or that you, you can't just think that because something's happening in Italy, it won't make it to the UK or because something's happening in the Middle East, it's not going to make it to Pakistan. How do you you encounter, how do you react to the people who are having trouble internalizing something negative that's about to happen? And this could be either policy-wise or in your medical practice.
1: I think one of my strengths is the vision that I can bring to a situation. I was one of the more vocal clinicians about the potential COVID-19 issues on the, in the horizon that eventually did unfortunately come to fruition. My strength is strategy. And the challenge for me is, is always how to implement and persuade people as to this is the issues and these are the risks. In the end, I think as the, the situation and the waves emanated, the true reality of the situation became evident and it, uh, the people that were not persuadable were persuaded in the end. It wasn't easy.
0: I think that there are still several people in really important positions who are, have yet to be persuaded about some of this stuff. We're still seeing different nations who are falling behind. I'm I'm worried about my colleagues who are in India right now. Um, how was it in Pakistan?
1: We're in a connected world now and Quickly, you know, I pick up the issues and unfortunately I've had colleagues who have perished in the UK, in the UAE and in Pakistan as well. And Pakistan is going through, through a rough patch. It is very difficult and it's un- uh, difficult to understand the true dynamics of a situation as testing isn't as comprehensive as it could be. However, I'm an eternal uh, optimist and I hope that the vaccines will be uh, available soon.
0: I get my shot tomorrow. I'm very excited about it.
1: Actually, uh, maybe, sorry to interrupt you and uh, and say one of the things that I was trying to do was, uh, was also to trying to get people to get vaccinated early as well. And I uh, used social media. I went and got my, my vaccines. People were worried about the Chinese vaccine and they were worried, you know, efficacy, side effect profile, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd seen the cases and I'd seen the patients in ICU and I just thought it was well worth taking that risk. Of course, as a clinician, you can only provide the advice and it's up to people at the end of the day to, to take that advice. But, you know, I got myself onto LinkedIn very quickly, got the jab and took the pictures and said, you know what, this is. And, uh, you know, I've been advocating this from sort of early on really, to get, get vaccinated and vaccinated early.
0: Well, it's not even, vaccine hesitancy is one of the issues, but also vaccine access. I mean, there's been tremendously unequal access globally. It's still uncertain how quickly the world will be able to produce enough vaccines from whatever provider to get to where they need to go quickly enough. Well, one of the things this raises is, is the extent to which in all professions, but perhaps in a, in a more heightened way in medical professions, we encounter situations or decisions that elicit moral conflict. What are the things that elicits the most moral conflict for you and how do you manage that when you encounter them?
1: Thank you. I, I, this uh, was a complex question. So when there's a, a certain treatment or a management approach or Plan that needs to be followed uh, as a do- as a doctor, but there are restrictions. Now the restrictions may be that the health system hasn't developed necessarily, or resources are are restricted, or even there is a clash of cultures. You have the the sense of what is right and uh, the sense of what you need, you need to do at this time. So I think the first thing, the step, is realizing what what is in, within your power t- to be able to do. I, I can't go into specifics because I was involved in a certain situation, and due to uh, patient confidentiality, however, all I, c- I can say is that it was a difficult time for, for all, all my staff, for, for us, and we knew that a certain management plan had to be had to be undertaken, and we, we found a way that was a, a negotiation, but led to led to led to a good outcome. Uh, however, to prevent that situation from arising again. I then had to uh, work closely with uh, with my hospital management to implement uh, protocols and in such a way that we um, we could move things forward. It was such a complex situation, and at the end of life is such a complex mixture of abilities to work with families, look at the, the conditions, and uh, to understand. What is the best that you can give to that family and to that patient at that time? So I think just to answer your question is to take a step-by-step approach to dissect what you can, what's within your control, and then to try to attempt uh, to make things better for the future.
0: Well, one of the ways I think that you live out those values is your enormous contribution to the charitable sector. What made you so committed to doing so much work outside your professional capacity in which you get paid to do so much pro bono and volunteer?
1: The reason I decided to do medicine at an early age, that juncture when I was thinking, you know, IT was really coming up, maths was a great, you know, strength of mine as well. But there was a great, the, the feeling of doing some greater good. And I grew up in the times of uh, Live Aid and the major uh, issues in Ethiopia, and I just saw the kind of uh, opportunities there were for uh, for doctors to, to make a difference. Having achieved a level of expertise, I just thought it, it is, was the right thing to to give back. In the, uh, working in the uh, National Health Service in the UK, a lot of the things are given. Even going to the US, I I realized how patients in in the UK don't know how lucky they are with some of the the treatments uh, that they do get. And it just seemed that this, uh, the time of my development into a consultant, that it was just right for me to now offer my expertise in an area of work that is is quite new to many health systems. So that's what, what drove it. But uh, the spark to the whole thing was the 2005 uh, earthquake in uh, in Southeast Asia in Pakistan. And and since then there's been uh, other humanitarian crises, been the floods and now COVID-19. And each time uh, a different type of skill set has been has been required to impact and provide uh, humanitarian healthcare in those situations.
0: How have you found the differences? With each humanitarian crisis, what are the different things that you need to bring to the table?
1: So the earthquake, basically, it was one quick event that was devastating. It it meant we needed to mobilise teams, doctors who were experts in trauma, get them to the site, get them to those villages, and get them to those uh, communities. And particularly, our our teams were focused on trauma and, in particular, uh, protecting children. Our teams went into camps and... We provided a nice process whereby we could anesthetize children for their fractures and, of course, you know, other trauma trauma situations, whereas other teams were not so sensitive to those because, you know, they hadn't that level of, of experience. So that was the earthquake. It began the my story with the development of the charity that was then involved five years later in 2010 in the floods. Floods were different. They started from the... Uh, the flow of water started from the north and was moving southwards. So we had the issues of dealing with the patients in the north to house them and to, to provide them with the vaccinations, et cetera, et cetera. But we were also anticipating the effects in Karachi. So we, we had had time, but the dynamics were, were different. COVID-19 is an ongoing complex array of, of challenges, not just one, one peak and trough. You know, it's just uh, multiple peaks and multiple troughs. I think that that the the dynamics each time have been different.
0: What for you has been the hardest thing about leading through the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: It's trying to pre-plan ahead what resources are needed and preempt the the issues and difficulties. Within the pandemic as well, it's been uh, frustrating. There's been the the emotional side. We had a, a, a teenage child who was sick. In one bed, it was, it, when I'm uh, working, I, I just work. But uh, when you have, when you ask people, ask you to think about something, it takes a bit longer. So we we had a we had a child who was in one bed, and uh, her, her, her mother died in the in the other bed. So we weren't able to tell her that her mother had passed away because she was she was quite sick. That, that's just one uh, one environment uh, oh, sorry one one case. Uh, there have been there've been others as well.
0: Thank you for telling me that. I, there are so many lessons that I feel like we're learning this year that it's hard to even um, know how to articulate them because it's going to take a long time for the dust to settle after we get through this. And I worry that one of the hopeful things that I think about as we move through the pandemic is for me and many people I know our ability to feel grateful has increased right so many things were taken away so many things were made more difficult so many people suffered even the smallest thing like a haircut you know is something about which to be extremely grateful but I also worry about the long-term mental health effects that this will have on the people that served on the various front lines?
1: Well, when I get asked to reflect, it's always, uh, I I find it very, very difficult. But one of the phenomena that you have to be really careful about is is the difficulty of burnout as well, because this is a a pandemic, but we've, um, as ICU doctors, we see the edge edge of life. It's, It's part of the story. I've had challenges in the past where you still remember those children you think, well, what if I did this and what what could I have done, you know, how could I have made it different? And I, I became a pediatrician, passed my exams, et cetera, but I really became a pediatrician when uh, we had my first daughter. That uh, emotional side, you really begin to appreciate. So one of the ways I tend to, it's not a protective mechanism, but one of the mechanisms that I use, is to always to remind myself that I only have a certain amount of power. I have the physical physical abilities. I have the capabilities also to to make a difference. But spiritually, there is uh, you know other aspects to it, and that's not within not within my power. Once I I realize that, then uh, then then I I move on. But I think it's very important to also think about protecting oneself, being in it for the long long game.
0: Well, we need to find ways of restoring ourselves when we do become burnt out. This next set of questions I call the lightning round, but it's just a really quick way that we can get to know you as a person and as a leader more quickly. One of them is, what's your favorite way to restore yourself when you've become depleted?
1: I play, play hockey, field hockey. I think having a, a life outside medicine is very, very important. I think also spiritually, the understanding that as a uh, man, as a human being, you have a certain limitation. And above that, the science is moving on. We're developing new new ways. But, you know, you, some situations are out as, as, as with your hand. And uh, thirdly, it's also to ensure that you are not in those stressful environments too often or you have put mechanisms in place to make those, those situations easier in the future.
0: It's a good thing that you uh, specified field hockey because, as a Canadian, I would have immediately assumed ice hockey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> However, the uh, I think the impact probably is the same in terms of bigger reality and uh, you know the whole uh, competitive aspect of it.
0: Well, there's something about team sports that you're gathering together to accomplish trivial goals,
1: but trivial goals that you're
0: meeting together as a team, right? So you have a limited. Transcendent goal that a number of people are working together to meet, and I think there's something about placing yourself within a team to accomplish something that is that is very restorative.
1: I've, I've never been a striker. I'm, I'm not for me scoring the goals is is not the important thing. I've always been in the defense, working to stop the goals and working with my team to put the processes in place to you know so others can score. So anyway, that's that's just an <laughs> insight.
0: That doesn't surprise me at all. What is your favorite work of fiction?
1: Uh, the Lord of the Rings. I read that as a, as a youngster and it was my first book. That was a multiple series and uh, it was just a wonderful time. It was a time before YouTube and digital media, et cetera, et cetera, and you just had your books.
0: What about the series do you like particularly?
1: There's a group of people, of individuals that are uh, going through a system and working together for a common good.
0: That is a theme with you, Ezra. What is a secret skill that you have?
1: So when I was uh, young, I was actually, I was left-handed. I'm a twin. My twin was right-handed and I was left-handed. So unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, I was made right-handed because in those times schooling was about being right-handed. But when I play sports, I have the ability to hit uh, the ball with my left hand. So that's uh, also quite useful and that surprises people. And secondly, I can make, uh, you know, chapati, the roti. I can make those nice and round, but please don't tell my wife. She hasn't seen me do that for many years, so it's a secret.
0: <laughs> Why would you want to keep such a great secret skill from your wife?
1: Ah, uh, well, I think we should discuss that on a different podcast. <laughs>
0: okay. I'm, actually, I'm left-handed, too. They didn't change me, although I, I don't think we grew up in very different eras. But I shoot ice hockey right-handed for some really weird reason. Oh, you play ice hockey as well. Oh, great. <laughs> it's a Canadian patriotic duty. That's right. We, oh, <laughs> we all have to skate. What, what do you consider your personal motto?
1: Well, of course, it was related to what you, uh, you asked earlier about who are the role models in life and the things I learned from my parents, and that is to work hard. I've recently s- sort of modified that motto. I read the book by Professor Carl Newport from George Washington University on deep work And the motto is sort of changed to be so good, they can't ignore you. So in a way, it's a sort of similar sort of ethic.
0: I really, I really love the idea of developing such deep expertise in a domain that you become sort of untouchable. You know, I've I've watched Dr. Fauci through the pandemic. Yes. And the incredible constraint he was exercising leadership and influence under. And there is something about developing that kind of depth of expertise that makes you untouchable.
1: Absolutely agreed. I absolutely agreed. And I'm actually now, through my journey in the PhD, I'm actually understanding what it means to be on the edge edge of knowledge. And it's uh, it's an amazing place to be.
0: If you had to do something entirely different with your life, what would it be?
1: As I mentioned uh, earlier, I had the chance when I was thinking of my career choice, do I go into, into mathematics, applied mathematics? And I think, in a way, I'm kind of, in my PhD, I, it's in genomics and it's to do with AI and it's to do with mathematics. In a way, I probably am reverting back to some of those core skills. But I, I think I would be focused on the application or as a mathematician on um, applying to, to, to social good. That would be, would be an amazing ability.
0: Thank you. Yes, I'd like that ability too. So the the last set of questions sort of look to the future. And and the first one is is about what leaders you most admire and why. So who do you aspire to to emulate and why are they so influential for you?
1: I don't deem myself to be ultra religious. However, one person that's had a really a impact on me, me and many many Muslims is Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. The reason I, I put him forward as a, as a great great role model is, uh, I believe, he stopped the life burial of female infants. He was an advocate for equality and, uh, and black rights. One of the first few companions was Bilal, who, who, was, who was black. And Bilal's voice was so amazing that he was given the task of um, sounding the azan as well from the mosque. He was also a voice for the poor and the reason why Muslims, especially around the time of Ramadan, have to give two and a half percent of their of their wealth to the poor. And not only all those things, but he was also into, into animal welfare as well. And I believe he was well ahead of his time. You moved
0: from the UK to the UAE in 2017. And the article you sent suggested that in part that was because of the racism and discrimination that you faced in in British hospitals. Would you mind talking a little bit about that, and perhaps providing advice for other people who are likely to experience that same kind of mistreatment?
1: Perhaps the word uh, racism is too too hard a word to say, and uh, also I, I don't wish to I don't want to name any hospital or any, any system, But I, I would like to just talk about the system in general. There, there were challenges, and uh, being uh, the first Pakistani in some uh, some aspects of my uh, my field, my work, etc. These may be some of the challenges one one expects, and I don't um, think that people mean to have uh, you know discriminate against people. H- however, systems are set up in such a way that that's what ends ends up happening. So uh, I'm quite keen not to sound myself as a victim. And uh, I think that racism article, I just wanted to give you an idea of uh, the flavor of some of the things that I uh, potentially you know, was going, going through at the time. We have all become
0: much more aware in the last two years about how deeply ingrained some of these systems are. And mentioning that the reason why Mohammed is a role model for you, having to do with his inclusivity, right? And ability to have meaningful relations and advocacy across across demographic lines that would not have been accepted back then and are still tricky now. The way we move through the world is affected by our demographic characteristics. When that creates difficulties for us, I think there are people who listen to this podcast who would be interested to know how you've how you, how you manage those and, and have the resilience to, to lead through them, even when people might not be seeing you for who you see yourself to be?
1: Yes, I, I think that's a really good question. I, I felt at the time I, I was on the cliff edge, really, in that I wasn't able to achieve all the goals to the standard and the capabilities that I knew I could. It required me to make a bold decision. And my MBA program actually helped me to make that decision. Colleagues had been given uh, time time off for, for various difficulties, illnesses, etc. Significant time in which I I'd, I'd provided support to those uh, colleagues and to the institution. And when my time came to have a few months to finish off my MBA, etc., etc., that wasn't forthcoming. I then made that decision that Doing the MBA and learning and moving forward is more important than being in a situation. So I had to hand in my res- resignation to resign from a, a job that was a, a permanent position. It was quite quite challenging, but I've, I've never looked back. And I was offered multiple other part-time opportunities because of uh, uh, of the people that I knew who wanted to support me, et cetera. And that allowed me then to finish the, the MBA program as well
0: it speaks to how expertise protects us, right? That the thought of leaving permanent positions is terrifying for a lot of people, right? And and lots of people stay in positions that are not good for them mentally or, or emotionally because that risk seems too great that there won't be something good on the other side. But if we keep developing our expertise and living consistently with a Core set of solid values. The universe does recognize that. Our networks do recognize that, and there will be somewhere to land,
1: land or to to progress in one's career as well. You know, and I think it's been a very uh, therapeutic podcast for me, therapeutic or enlightening or or both. Uh, I really do appreciate the ability to be able to talk to you like this on a on such a platform.
0: Well, maybe we'll we'll finish with one more question to leave on a high note. What gives you the most hope for the future?
1: The implementation of uh, of technology to, to healthcare has been profound. The vaccinologies, uh, you yeah, know, there's so many different things that are happening. And I think if we can socialize that technology, you know, we can make, uh, as doctors, as clinicians and healthcare personnel, we can maybe make a difference on a, on a broader scale to help, help more people. I'm very positive about the application of technology to healthcare and that. Me, a lot of reason for optimism.
0: Well, I have no doubt that you will continue to do that and make great strides in providing excellent care globally to the children and constituencies that you serve. I am so glad that this podcast gave us an opportunity to connect again after a few years. Thank you so
1: much for joining me. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much for your time, Senior. You. It's been a real honor.
0: For individuals who would like to contribute to the medical training and healthcare services that the Midland Doctors provides throughout Pakistan, visit www.midlanddoctors.org. Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Moutry, who are Pronk Productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.